please join me in welcoming Carla R. from Tahunga, California. I did my best. Yeah. Tahunga? Perfect. Yeah. Welcome, Carla. Thanks, Corey. Hi, everybody. My name is Carla, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, yeah, Tahunga. It's a Spanish spelling of an Indian word. It means where the hell did all these Harleys come from? And um, so, <laughs> um, and not Topanga, not out there by Malibu. We're up here just north of Burbank, right in the foothills of the Angeles Crest Forest. Why I think you need to know that, I don't know, but it's the best kept secret in Southern California. And I love it. Um, I, uh, first I wanna thank Pej for the invitation to come out here and share and Laura for <clears throat> following up and making sure I had all the information and confirming and stuff. and. And Lynn, for that beautiful AA talk, um, thank you. I, I love you in my life. I've just been, you know, you're the reason that that my passion stays high, um, you know, all these years later. My sobriety date, September 25th, 1987. And um, I know that I've been sober long, longer than some of you guys have been alive. And I, and I wished, I remember wishing or hoping for something like that when I was new, you know, because there was an old guy named Lee, Henry out here in our area, we're in the San Gabriel Valley where I got sober. And that guy, man, a lot of people will never know his name, but he used to sit out in front of this, this uh, uh, fast food place every morning and, and work with newcomers. That's what he did. He just worked with newcomers. And, um, and he was longer sober than so many of us, you know, <laughs> had been alive. So anyway, I thought I want to be that. Um, so anyway, here I am. I'm that and uh, moving slower and um, and loving life. <laughs> I uh, um, am so glad that you read that portion of chapter three. That's what I heard when I got in when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, they read that in my first home group. And while I love hearing the solution, I wasn't ready to know. I didn't know if I was in the right room yet, you know? And so when I went up there and it said AA on the sign, and when I sat in there and you read that portion of chapter three, and then I heard people talking about how they couldn't, they couldn't control their drinking and they couldn't stop starting, you know, and, and, and they, and then they talked about recovering from that. And then some guy came in and took a cake for 22 years. I mean, they took, they turned the lights off for dramatic effect, right? 22 years. And I know that it sometimes looks like, you know, wow, how did they stay sober six months or six days or anything like that? I know it, the obsession was on me for a long time, but I needed also to see that it worked long-term, 22 years, man, it worked. Cause I had been, I had started to be locked up when I was, or, or you know, very young, 14. I think I was, the, I was locked up the first time at 13, then 14, and then started long-term and most of my adolescent life. And so, which is maybe why I've done the pandemic so easily, you know, I'm used to getting all revved up to go nowhere, you know, and uh, that came back to me pretty easily. <laughs> but um, I needed to anything I ever learned in any of those places where I was, I left there when I left. And so I needed something that would be installed in me, That's the process of the steps installed in me, so that when I walked out of the meeting and the door closed, and I was somewhere else other than the place where everybody was, I was okay. You know, you guys taught me that. And um, so anyway, and I, and I too, you know, I don't know why I'm an alcoholic. I know that a lot of people came to AA having built and lost great empires. You know, they come a little bit later in life or it took a while for the allergy to develop in them. And so they, they came later, but I started early 
And um, and I and I got to tell you too that when I was I, since I was a small child, I believed in God. I had an experience. I had experiences with God. So it wasn't like I was a non-believer or didn't understand that there was something wonderful going on. It's just that when alcohol came along, it it did it. You know, I come from a, a dark, violent, perverted family, and it wasn't like we didn't love each other, but but we um you know, when the, when the stuff hit the fan, we blew up, you know, and, and, uh, and that didn't make me alcoholic as, and I know that because I've come to AA and I met people like my husband who lived a charm childhood, nothing ever out of the ordinary happened to them. And, and, you know, they grew up singing together and loving each other and all that. And his father even painted the family pickup truck, the color of his high school, you know, is that family just sugary sweet, you know what I mean? And yet he sits right next to me in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Why? Because alcohol did exactly to and for him what it did to and for me. And, and so, but when it came along, you know, I had, uh, uh, I, I had had little drinks, but I started drinking with purpose and with, with intent when I was about 11, 11 and a half. And, and, uh, and it just became my spirituality, you know, it became my growing up muscle, it became the thing that made me feel buffered from you and the thing that made me feel connected to you all at the same time. Why wouldn't I use that? It was the great counterfeit facilitator, you know, I could pray, and I could take a drink, and a drink was just so much quicker, it fixed it right away. None of that sitting around trying to figure out what God's will was for me. I take a drink, and I'm sure of it now. And, and it worked like that for a long time. And I'm sure that, that uh, I know that my dad used to say that they were just trying to buy me some time when I was locked up because, uh, and I think maybe that's true. You know, I mean, I come from a family where my baby sister committed suicide at the age of 17. My baby brother died of drug addiction and alcoholism when he was 30. My mom died of end-stage liver disease. And my last remaining sibling still can't stop drinking. And I don't think she really has any interest in it. You know, she just lives one of those, scrapey little lives, you know, and just hanging on. And, and uh, I don't know which is worse, but I, I just feel like I was um, that somehow when I left home, it was for me to leave, even though I jumped from the frying pan into the fire for a while. And when I was 14, I ended up in a place called North Beach in the San Francisco area. And I ended up learning how to turn tricks for to make a living. And, um, and, you know, that's where I went. And, you know, I'm not against sex. I'm not even against sex for money if that's working for you, but it just wasn't on my list of things to do when I was a kid. You know, when I was a kid in elementary school, I wanted to be the first woman president and the first woman to run a four minute mile and the first woman major league baseball player. That's who I wanted to be. And when I started drinking, my life took a big wide left turn and and uh, and like the chapter to the doctor, the, the chapter of the doctor's opinion says Dr. Silkworth says that after a time we can't differentiate the true from the false and after a while our alcoholic lives seem the only normal one and it certainly seemed that way for me and I ended up in a mental hospital for a year and and you know again I love in the in the doctor's opinion where it says it's you know this alcoholism thing isn't just because we're in full flight from reality not all, not all of us are just because we're outright mental defectives not all of us are some of us might be and not all of us are in full flight from reality. And I just know that before living in a mental hospital where I lived with all of those kind of people, this wasn't a treatment center. This was, these were these people and not everybody was an alcoholic. So, 
So um, I, I, it took me a, a while. I didn't even know what might've been going on with me. I was in a mental hospital and then a rehab at the state hospital, which went exactly the opposite way. And, um, and we were doing all this, uh, Synanon was big back then. And so we were, we were based on that kind of therapy, the attack therapy thing and tough love and all that stuff. And, and then a girl's home. And I ran away from all of those places. And I was just sure that when I got out on my own, that you would see, and that it was just about, you know, it was all your fault and their fault and his fault and its fault. And, and then I got out and I was sure that when I turned 18, I'd be, I'd be all okay. And, you know, as uh, my, I, uh, I was out on, uh, on Sunset Boulevard one night and I turned the corner, walked around, this car had waved me over and, and uh, I put my hand on his door, on uh, the door handle of, of the car. And the next thing I knew, I was spread eagle on the trunk of an unmarked car, swearing I just, uh, I just uh, thought they wanted directions. And, and, um, and, you know, so, so much for when I turn 18, everything's going to be okay, you know. And um, I hooked up with a, a boyfriend from a, a rehab, and and I know that some of you can identify with that. You know, um, that's where they keep a lot of the partners in the rehabs. And and uh, I, you know, and I was I was a, I grew up in the '60s, and I, even though I was 12 in 1969, the '60s were pretty much over. But I love those people. I love the way the, the strength and the power and the love of those people. I wanted to be that. I wanted to be the peace and love kind of person. And I was like this violent and always ending up in these situations that were just so far flung from that. And we ended up living in a tent in the mountains in Southern Oregon. And then we found this old roofless log cabin across town, way up on another mountain. And it had no roof, so we threw a plastic tarp over the top and called it a skylight. And then the baby came, and I was 20 years old when I had my little girl. And I thought, I swear, I thought that that she was going to change the way I drank, you know, like I was going to get it together, like I was going to be the parent that that I never had. I and and I had had enough therapy to co-sign that, you know, to know that you got to break the cycle of parenting. You got to be the parent you never had, and all of that stuff. And by that time I was getting my clothes and shoes and the necessities of life out of a box behind a store in town. And I thought I was gonna be a better parent than the one I had. Alcoholism doesn't care who we love. By that time I was drinking homemade wine and moonshine because it was organic and much better for you. And still, you know, no change. And um, she, my daughter got in the way of one of our fights when she was about 10 months old. So I had to take her up the road where it had to be better somewhere else. My favorite place to be was on my way to somewhere else. That's where the hope is. It's just going to be better on, you know, just a little bit further down the line. Just give me a minute, give me a minute. And my first legitimate work was in the bar business. And it never occurred to me not to drink on the job. Why else would you have that job? It just seemed to me to be cosmically efficient, you know, and I drugged that kid over three states. And, um, and, uh, you know, I was doing the best I could. I was just sure that if we could just plant some roots and get it together, we'd all be okay. You know, still no thought that alcohol was the thing, you know, it, that, that it was, it was still more the solution than the problem, you know, just give me a minute, just give me a minute. And, uh, and we ended up living in, uh, down in Southern California in a little town called Covina, renting a room for my aunt for a while, you know, when I had gotten this great job in Hollywood, working at this bar, 
Um, great, not a dive. It was a great bar down the street from a TV studio. So, you know, there was a lot of money that went through and any, any healthy person could have made a great living doing what I was doing, but it was me. I was a common denominator. And every afternoon I'd kiss my four-year-old daughter goodbye. And I'd take off for the bar in Hollywood and I'd get thirsty about halfway there. And I'd pull into my favorite watering hole and order up my couple of shots of Cuervo and a couple of Bud Backs. And I'd drink them down and hop off the bar stool and head on out to Hollywood and go do my shift till the wee hours of the morning and crawl home and start all over again. And I saw nothing wrong with that. That's just what we do. You know, and it it was brought to my attention just a few weeks ago that only an alcoholic would call two shots of Cuervo and two Bud Backs, two drinks, but that's what it is, right? And so I, you know, that went on for a, a few months until one afternoon I kissed my girl goodbye and I took off and I, and I stopped at that same bar on the way to the bar and I ordered up those shots of gold and bud backs. And to this day, I don't know what was different on that day from the day before, except for 24 hours, because I didn't hate the job I was going to. And I didn't love my daughter any less on that day than I love her today. But I sat on the bar stool that day and I couldn't stop drinking. This time, the knowledge that I needed to get up off the bar stool and head on out to Hollywood to go do a shift at a job I really liked going to was just not enough to overcome the phenomenon of craving that happens once I start to drink. Nor was the knowledge that my little girl, the most important person in the world to me, I would have told you, was sitting at home waiting for her mommy to come home that night so we could play for a while and then start the next day all over again. Wasn't enough to overcome the phenomenon of craving that happens once I start to drink. And if just don't drink would have worked, you'd have a different speaker tonight. But I sat on the bar stool and I drank those drinks and I lost them both in one fell swoop. The kid and the job were gone. And I stayed and I lived off the kindness of strangers there in that little area for a, till I fell into another job in another dive bar. I was there for maybe a month or so. And I love that beautiful little understatement that Bill writes that we all have our own version of. I know if you're anything like me, we all know what he meant, no matter what our educational background or, or how long we drank or how what our religious leanings or political leanings are. We all know what he meant when he said gradually things got worse and worse they got. And I ended up marrying my drinking partner right about the time we should have split up. And we moved into this little apartment. And I thought, you know, putting my circumstances back together, putting it all together so that I could get the kid back, that was going to do it. And, you know, we just became the neighborhood entertainment. We used to settle our arguments with a shotgun and whoever got to the gun first won. That's how we did it. And, you know, on it went. And I finally got my daughter back when she was eight and a half. And I didn't get sober till she was almost 10. And here's where I really began to suspect that maybe I was down for the count, you know, and I couldn't say it out loud. You know, you can't say things like that, like I'm afraid of how I drink to people, you know, because they're already telling you things like maybe you're one of those people who shouldn't drink, you know, and I would I would say, well, screw you. You know, you're sitting right here next to me, especially in the bar. You're drinking right here with me. You know, how can you tell me something like that? You know, but secretly, you know, I'm beginning stuff's beginning to happen that I'm not that, you know, I don't understand, but you can't say it out loud. But here's where it really, you know, re really began to scare me. And that's when I got my daughter back when she was almost when she was eight and a half. And and during the week, five days a week, I would have one job and that would be to go pick her up in the afternoon from school. It was a 10 minute, 15 minute ride one way and then and then back. That's all I had to do is go pick her up from school and bring her home. 
And so five days a week, Monday through Friday. So in the afternoon, I'd get in the car and I'd head on over uh, in that direction and I'd get thirsty on the way. So I'd pull into my bar and uh, and I'd order up a drink and I'd sit at the bar for a minute and I'd, and I'd look at the clock and think I got 45 minutes. I'm going to have this one drink and I'm going to go pick up Amber. And so then I start to drink and I think oh, I might have two. I could probably squeeze in two. And then, you know, pretty much three. I mean, you know, we can, we can suck down three and then somebody lines up the bar with empty shot glasses and I can't turn down a free one, you know, that'd be impolite. So I'm going to have four and then five and six, and then I'm late, late to go pick up the most important person in the world to me. And I finally peel myself off the bar stool and I head on over to the school where my daughter is. And I have to go into the front office because that's where they keep the kids whose parents can't get there in time. And I walk in and the best defense is an offense, right? So I'm mad at the staff because I'm late. And as I walk into the office, I trip over my own feet and I go rolling across the floor of the office where my daughter attends school. And as I go rolling across the floor of the office where my daughter attends school, I catch a glimpse of my daughter's face and the look in her eye as she's watching me go rolling across the floor. And I felt that sense of powerlessness, you know, not the kind of powerlessness like, oh my God, I've got to do something, but the kind of powerlessness like, oh my God, I'm never going to change. And so the only thing I can do is to get up as best I can and grab her hand and get out to the car and, and leave before they call the police like they're threatening to do. And I didn't get sober for another little over a year after that. One more time, you know, my husband and my daughter and I are living in this tiny little apartment across town now. The marriage had long been over. I don't know why we were still together. One more Saturday afternoon, the cops are in the driveway one more time and the neighbors are watching us again and the kids standing over in the corner, scared to death again. And none of us planned on that happening that day. And the cops finally left. They took the gun, the husband left for the last time. It's me and the kid in the booze and I couldn't stop drinking. And here's where a hard drinker might take a look at their life and say, you know, I'm really tired of this. Our big book talks about this too. A hard drinker given sufficient reason can just stop, you know, health or a marriage or something. They just stop. I've seen them do it. They say things like, I couldn't handle it, couldn't control it. So I had to stop. And they do, they just move on. Even if they have to go to detox for a week or two to help with the physical, then they move on. But me, what I did was I just pulled the booze closer to the couch so I didn't have to keep getting up to get another drink because I drank through my circumstances. I drank through drug addiction and I drank through homelessness and I drank through the loss of my daughter and I was getting ready to do it again. And my first sponsor told me if I wanted to affect a conscious contact with the power greater than myself, I might start by counting the coincidences that happened in my life. And that sounded pretty good to me because, you know, I needed to start at a, a kind of a basic place. I needed to land, you know, I had a lot, I had had experiences. And then after I started drinking, it was just a long distant memory and only a belief, not an experience anymore. So, so she told me to count my, count the coincidences that happened in my life. You know, those situations that seemed to fall together for the good of everybody without me having my hands on it. Coincidence, grace with a capital G. And the first one I could count was that I had moved in next door to a woman who had five years of sobriety in AA. And she had seen and heard that whole deal go down that day. And she came over a couple of days later and brought me a big book and a 12 and 12. And she just sat on my couch and she told me her story. And she talked about her and in her story, I heard me. 
And I was thinking as she was talking, you know, how I'd run into her over the last year in the parking lot and in the laundry room and stuff. And she wasn't drinking then either. And what impressed me more about that was it didn't seem to bother her that she wasn't drinking. And I don't know how you do that. All I knew is that when I had no booze and I had no steps or fellowship or God of my understanding, no sufficient substitute, I felt like you stripped the coating off my wires. I felt oversensitive and underloved. And I didn't know what you meant by that or why you looked at me that way. And my self-centered head would close in on me from there. So much so that even though I knew a little bit about booze by that time, I knew I, I couldn't guarantee if I was going to have two or 22. I also knew the window of relief had gotten really, really small. I also knew that I no longer had to invite trouble. It just seemed to come to visit unsolicited, right? I just opened the front door and there it is. So I didn't know how her 12 little thinly veiled Sunday school sentences were going to have any effect on me in the face of what I'd become. They just seemed a little weak, you know. But our book says we had to be beaten into a state of reasonableness. I needed something. I came here and like they say, as an old AA saying, you know, I didn't see the light. I felt the heat. <laughs> so I was becoming increasingly interested in what you and what my neighbor had to say, even though I didn't see how it could possibly work. I really kind of thought I'd tried it all and found it wanting. So I didn't get sober that day. It was about a week and a half later. I just didn't go back and buy any more booze. And I sat in that little apartment. My daughter was gone for the weekend and I shook it out. And there was no more treatment for me. People have been trying to help me all my life. It was rubber hit the road time. And I, and I didn't even know that. I just sat in that little apartment over the weekend and into Monday and into Tuesday. And by Tuesday afternoon, I was stark raving sober. And I went back to my neighbor instead of the store. It was just one, little, one more little wormhole of grace I slipped through cooperated with and landed on her doorstep asking her what to do. And she sent me up to a meeting in Sierra Madre and that became my first home group. And I went up there and I sat way back by the open door and the exit sign just in case, just in case what, I don't know. But uh, I heard that pre-meeting chatter, you know, everybody talking and asking each other stuff about fourth steps and sponsors and big books and coffee and do you need a ride home and all of that stuff. and. Then I heard somebody say, hey, Joe, how's your lawn? And I thought, oh my God, small talk, you know? And, I, and it occurred to me like, oh my God, could my life ever be so elegant and simple as to be concerned about a lawn? Like, you know, my life had been so far removed from that for so long, hustling and scraping and holding on. Could it ever just be about sitting on a Saturday afternoon smelling fresh cut grass? It really moved me. It sounded like hope. And then the secretary asked me to read something at the end of the meeting and I said, yes. And I took it from her and I read. And as I read, I came into the room just a little bit more, just like I do every time I say yes to something you asked me to do. And thank God, you know, if for those little commitments and now here on Zoom, you know, we, we read, we greet, you know, we, we dig into this two dimensional platform, you know, to try to be of service and deal ourselves into this group, you know, but we're going to be going back. And I know some people have already started to go back face to face. And, you know, we have to climb into that room somehow. And before the steps even take hold, you know, they, they gave me ashtrays to wash and coffee cups to wash and hands to shake and chairs to stack. And, and I didn't know what they were offering me at the time, you know, and so if somebody ever volunteers you to do something in the room, thank them and just be on your way about it because it's a gift. For I, I didn't know, I didn't even know until it started to happen that I began to experience the absence of the noise on the inside of my own head for a little while. That self-centered, circular, you know, just chatter, chatter, self, self, self.
And then the steps began to take hold. And I had to drink one more time at 89 days. And, and um, I had to finish the drunk. It was about uh, a 24 hour drunk. And I want, and as soon as I took those drinks, I wanted what I'd had just a few minutes earlier. And I was lucky enough to get to come back, you know, um, and here's the thing, you know, we're always welcome in an AA meeting. If we go out and come back, we're always welcome. It's never a question of that. The question is, can we get back? I've heard of stories all over the place where two and in two and a half hours, people's were people's lives were changed forever, you know, in in bad ways, and and sometimes they just die. And um, so, so it's never a question about being welcome. Um, and then, like my friend mentioned again, you know, and 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 I used to think about this too. That uh, uh, sometimes we don't die, and we just scrape along those little scrapey little lives, you know, and uh, and hang on. So anyway, I uh, then I really started working with my sponsor, and and I took the rest of the steps, and I. And the obsession to drink alcohol was finally lifted for me at about nine months sober, right in the middle of making my amends somewhere along the line, I, I realized that the obsession was no longer on me and, and, uh, and it hasn't returned in all these years. There hasn't been one time even in any of the situation that's arisen since that time where I've thought that a drink would make any of it any better. Um, it's, uh, you guys have taught me well, you know, when that concession to that first step has been, um, you know, that's the one I've got to do perfectly, um, the first half of the first step, and and uh, so far so good. But the rest of the steps, now that's, you know, on any given day. Hmm. Um, but I try, I'm always in 150%. On any given day, it may look like 60 to you, but I'm in 150, you know. Um, So I made that first round of amends to my family. And to this day, there's not one member of my family who'll stand in the doorway and say, no, please don't go to the meeting. You know, they never do that. And nor does any member of my family ever have to wonder where I am or don't I love them or why can't they find me? That doesn't happen either. Then other people started asking me to sponsor them. And I got to tell you, the only fifth step I like better than mine is yours. Because in your eyes, I see forgivability and lovability and hope and growth where I don't always see it in myself. There are no dumb questions in your eyes. You draw from me things I didn't know I needed to share and you share with me things I didn't know I needed to hear every single time. That's the magic for me. One alcoholic talking to another, only the basis of our whole fellowship. After a couple of years, I'd had you guys and my daughter didn't have anybody. She was one pissed off 11 year old kid, you know, and she had been jumped into a gang and she was drinking and using and starting to find her sense of family and camaraderie out in the street where I used to, and I was worried about her. You know, we didn't know what was happening. And so after a while I ended up putting her in a treatment center and, and she was there for six months. And I showed up when they asked me to, and I stayed away when they asked me to. And you guys taught me that mountains are moved a spoonful at a time. And every day I just give it my best spoonful. And, you know, it, it took from the time she was about 11 till she was 23 for that whole thing to come around. You know, it, it takes time. And so if you're new and you're in, in the middle of the first time through this process, you know, please remember that, you know, we're just laying the groundwork here. Flimsy read after flimsy read after flimsy read, you know, is what my foundation is built on and it takes time. So we just lay it down and leave the results to God. And um, 
when she got out, she wanted to live with her dad and I had to let her go do that. And she came home back home to live with me of her own volition. And then when she was 16, she came home and, and I told, she had a funny look on her face and I told her she was pregnant and she nodded. And then I got to be the kind of a mom I've always wanted to be. And that was to be there and tell her that I was going to be there. Whatever you need, I'm here. Whatever you want to do, I'm here. So I was present at the birth of my first grandson. And and, uh, and that kid's going to be 26 years old in May. And he just finished, he's graduating law school on May 22nd. And he's studying for the bar exam now that he's going to take in July. And, uh, and then the youngest, her, her youngest just turned 20 and he moved away about a year ago and he's off working in Oregon and, and finding his way. And neither one of those kids have ever seen me drunk either. And my daughter just seemed to straighten herself out. I don't know. She just grew up. She didn't seem to really have the long-term allergy or anything like that, an obsession. It's really strange, but um, she put herself through school. And just a few years ago, I sat with my husband and my amended family, and we watched her collect her master's degree. And she became a social worker on the crisis impact team with the police department and, and, um, she became one of those people who goes out into the aftermath of things like the Las Vegas shooting and the San Bernardino terrorist act. And, and, you know, she was out setting up test uh, COVID testing sites last year. And she's one of those people who goes into the aftermath and helps the families begin to put the pieces of their lives back together. You know, that's who she is. And I don't know if she is who she is because or in spite of me, but I know that because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I get to be a privileged witness in her life and in the lives of anyone who wants to be in mine. And so I'm, I, I like that. Uh, when I was five years sober, I was raped by an intruder and he came in my, the kitchen window of my little apartment through, in the middle of the night. Uh, and uh, and uh, he had a knife and he took the telephone cord and he tied my hands behind my back and he raped me and he robbed me that night in my room. and. And I got to tell you, at five years sober, I had a much bigger God than I got here with, even though I had fight or flight going on there too. You know, I mean, my heart was, you know, racing. Um, but but there was also something inside me that just held on. And um, and he was there for a few hours. And and uh, and I ran for the door at one point and my own bolt lock kept me in. So I couldn't get out. And, and we ended up in a little wrestling match. And instead of getting more angry, he dropped the knife and he went out the same window he came in. And it turned out that I knew him. I'd actually watched him get sober 30 days before I did. And then I watched him get his life, his wife, his kids and everything back. And then I watched him join the church and leave AA behind. And when he went out, that's what happened. And what I chose to learn from that is that while the big book tells us to be quick to see where religious people are right to make use of what they offer, and they offer a lot, Alcoholics Anonymous is the place where I learned the terms and conditions of my alcoholism. Whether you did it for just a little while or whether you did it for a long time, like me and a lot of other people, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me that I'm not one of those people who can go home after a Sunday sermon and have a glass of wine. You know, this is where I remember, I learn and remember that. And then I can go out anywhere I want to and worship, you know, and expand on this 11th step, you know, and, 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 and I'm not somebody who thinks you have to choose between being religious or spiritual, you know, religions were built on spiritual principle. It's the, you know, we have faulty people in everything, but we have faulty people in AA too. <laughs> so, you know, like it's so fun to get into delicious self-righteousness, but, but really, you know, um, I, I don't think we have to choose, but the thing, the one distinction that I, that I, I make in my mind is that, that out there, 
um, in, in churches or other spiritual traditions, they speak of spiritual principles in general, very general terms, so that any human being, because we all have spirit, every human being is a spiritual being, not just an alcoholic. I don't know where we get that sometimes, but but they talk, but they talk of spirituality in very general terms. What we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous is we take spirituality and we aim it right at alcoholism, right at alcoholism. That's what we do in these rooms. And then we reunite us. We're not here just to sit in AA. Then we get connected again to the world at large. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous does for us. Tethered to Alcoholics Anonymous, I can go anywhere I want to in the world and make a contribution. It's what I'm not just what I want, but what I what I'm supposed to be doing. Anyway, there was a trial that followed a few months later, and as part of the defense, they had a lot of the guys I'd known years before get up and testify as to who I used to be, kind of like a big public fifth step. And, you know, I can guarantee you that when I first got to AA, you could not use the words Carla in good character in the same sentence. But now I'm five years sober, and I'm now I'm working at this big investment firm downtown Los Angeles, a place I never would have walked in the front doors of years before, very accomplished people walk the halls of that place, you know, and now class by class and task by task, I'm walking right alongside them undetected. So the division head there volunteered to come and testify on my behalf as a character witness. And they told him all about who I used to be. And he said, well, I don't know about that. He said, but she shows up early and she stays late. And she was where she said she was. And see, that's Alcoholics Anonymous speaking for itself. He didn't have to be coached. He just got up and told the truth as he'd experienced it through me. And then it was my turn to testify. And, you know, my sponsor had been reminding me that I, I need to forgive this guy. And I know she's right at five years of sobriety. I understand what resentment, the harm that it does in me. And, um, and I don't want to carry it. But the guy had scared me. And at five years of sobriety, anger was still my kind of my go to, you know, at fear like that anger's power until it be and unless but unless it becomes transformative, it becomes diminishing to my spirit. So it has to go. And the seven step prayer became my mantra. And uh, now I'm sitting in the witness stand and I look out and I see him and I'm thinking about this. I'm asking God and I, you know, I'm not a nugget prayer sayer, but I liked that prayer for this because it helped me get up and go to work. And it was words that I had with me all the time and I didn't get lost in them. It, it was, it was, it was really a good prayer for me. And so now I'm sitting in the witness stand and I look out and I see him sitting at the defense table and I realize that's a place where I've sat before and I could sit again. If I were to take a drink, I could be sitting in his very seat. And, um, and it occurred to me, you know, those considerations at the bottom of page 66 and the top of page 67 were where he goes into the turning point, the turning point from resentment to compassion. You know, though we didn't like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they like ourselves are spiritually sick. He just like me. Isn't it possible that, that don't I remember when I was so out of control that I was roaring through the lives of people of other of others like that proverbial tornado? Or couldn't I again, if I were to take a drink, be roaring through the lives of somebody else like that proverbial tornado? Or am I right now just so full of self-will I'm delusional and I can't see how I'm hurting somebody in my life right now? And in that the playing field got level, you know, and the compassion comes. Thank you. The compassion comes and the forgiveness comes and, and, and not of me, but through me. 
and not from a spiritual hilltop, like I'm so much better than him and, and praying for that son of a bitch to, you know, just come up and live up to my standards. You know, that's not, that's not what this is for, you know, but to see me as him and him as me, um, the, he, the forgiveness and compassion came that day and the healing took a while longer, maybe another year and a half or so before the nightmares and all of that stuff um, subsided, but they did. He was sentenced to 20 years and he did 12 and then he did three. And um, as far as I know, he's not been able to stay sober or out of prison, but I know it works in prison. I've had the privilege of carrying the message into every place I had ever been locked up and then into some men's prisons and then into the county jails for men and women. And, and it works where it's worked and, um, and it doesn't where it's not. And, um, and, I, and again, you know, we don't have the market cornered on miracles but I needed this particular miracle in this particular way with this particular calling card. Alcoholism was the impetus that got me in to the vehicle Alcoholics Anonymous that reintroduced me um, to a sustainable awakening that, that lo and behold, all these years later, a sustainable spiritual awakening that has allowed me a human experience. And I didn't even realize that's what I was looking for. You know, a way to walk on this earth with some some relative peace of mind and, and, um, and, and to experience love and, um, and being a part of. So the detective who worked the case came to me after it was over and he said, I'm, I'm not sure who you were back then. I'm not even sure I wanna know, but whatever it is you're doing now, keep doing it because it seems to be working. And that's Alcoholics Anonymous speaking for itself. And we didn't know it at the time of the trial. I'm glad we didn't until the trial was over, but the judge had been a long recovered alcoholic and, and uh, the court reporter was the Al-Anon mother of a woman in my home group. And so the 12 step fairies had thoroughly dusted the room before we got there. And then my sponsor and people from my home group and my sponsees were there at that trial and as was my dad. And um, there was a lot of support. And and, you know, my, my sobriety was kind of front loaded with stuff, you know, that happened. And then I got into a bad business deal with a boyfriend later and bankrupt at 10 years sober and paid back a bunch of money. And by 15 years sober, I was kind of had back to level again. I came with baggage and then I created some and then walked through that and, and, um, and things be, I began to settle down and, and, um, I've always had a meditation practice and it's evolved over the years and I don't have time to go into, you know, all of those different versions, but I highly recommend that, that you just start somewhere, you know, and I hear all the time and I've said it myself, you know, Oh, my head's so loud. I hate to, it's, it's hard to meditate. My head's so loud, but saying that I don't want to meditate because my head's so loud is like saying, I don't want to sweep my floor because it's so dusty. It's like, we got to start somewhere. And so every morning my feet at the floor and I say, thank you. And uh, this is what I do these days. I say, thank you. And then I ask God for the knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry it out, to direct my thinking. And um, then I say a little prayer my sponsor gave me and she tells me I remembered it wrong. So now there are two and, and uh, it just goes, dear God, grant me the heart of a grateful servant. And when I say that prayer, it feels like joy to me. And then I meditate for 20 minutes by myself. And then I get on a, a group with a group at 5:55 in the morning. And, you know, we say hello for five minutes to each other. And then we meditate for 20 minutes and, and it's maybe the best part of my day, you know, 
And it's not that big magic always happens on the meditation pillow, but it readies me for the day. It makes me more responsive than reactive. And sometimes wonderful things happen, but but mostly I just get to experience my day as best in my best possible form, I guess is, is a good way to put it. Um, and so that, that doesn't stop that grows. And, and, um, and I, I take deep dives into a lot of spiritual traditions. I'm, I'm fascinated still with the mystery and, um, and I've had a sustainable awakening. So I continue to, to feed it. You know, the promise of the second step has come true. The consciousness of my belief has come, has, has come to me. And, and when I draw near through the process of the steps by letting go of the things I'm not and becoming who I am, being, being, allowing myself to be guided, not driven into, into who I really am. I feel the nearness of my creator. I'm more useful. Um, and I'm changing again, you know, still and again at 33 years sober, there's a big rocking, something's going on. You know, the earth feels like it's moving and I don't know how it's going to be. I just trust the process all these years later. I just really trust the process. The first nine steps, you know, give us nine steps here, you know, do those. You'll come to trust the process. It's like, you know, learning to ride a bike with training wheels or dancing. You got to count one, two, three, one, two, three. It's awkward. It feels weird. I don't want to do it, all of that stuff. But then we come to trust it and then we redo it in 10. For me, step 10 is one through nine all over again. No shortcuts, no, no leaving anything out. One through nine all over again and then grow it in 11 and share it in 12. And boom, never in my book, in my big book, does it ever say stop doing this. It just says do it and do it again. And, and, and in that, and in this fellowship, Alcoholics Anonymous, I found so much joy. So glad to be here. I don't know if I said it, but I thought it happy. Uh, congratulations, Jay, for your, for your chip and, and, and for coming back in and being here with us. And, and happy anniversary, Laura. And, and I love you, Lynn. Thanks so much for your talk. I, I just love, love, love you. Thanks.